Our reading today is taken from Luke chapter 23, verse 26 to 56. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned to them and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine and vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a notice written above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there held insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. Well, thanks, Zach. In a couple of minutes' time, um, John is going to come and explain that passage to us. It's a privilege to have John uh, speak this morning. Good morning, Oakwall Church. So lovely to be with you this morning in this virtual way. Please grab your Bibles again and turn with me to the middle of Luke chapter 23. It has been such a joy this week in preparing, studying this pivotal passage in Luke's Gospel. And I really trust that God will speak to us all powerfully through it this morning. So let me pray and then we'll dive right in. 
Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all the ways that you've already blessed us this morning. We pray that you would be very kind and gracious to us and open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word. We pray this for the glory and honour of your Son, our crucified Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Four Gospels and all different in focus. Matthew writes his Gospel and his Gospel is all about depth. Matthew wants to show us how deep back into the Old Testament scriptures the promised Messiah goes. Matthew is about depth. Mark, on the other hand, is about lowliness. Mark's picture of Jesus is about how low the Lord Jesus stooped to rescue sinful humanity. How Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew deep, John, uh, Mark low, John is about height. John's picture of Jesus is the exalted, the, the one who is one with the Father. He wants us to see how, how cosmic and awesome the Lord Jesus is. Matthew deep, Mark low, John high. And Luke, as you'll know, because you've been studying it for the last four years, is about width. Luke wants to show us how wide Jesus' kingdom is, how wide Jesus' ministry is, how Jesus welcomes all kinds of people into his kingdom. It really is the gospel where outsiders become insiders and the people we thought were insiders are shown to be outsiders. This is particularly visible in our passage this morning. There is an entire panoply of humanity gathered around the cross. There is, as it says in verse 27 of our passage, a great multitude of people. There's Simon of Cyrene, Roman soldiers, native women of Jerusalem, two criminals, religious rulers, a centurion, Jesus' acquaintances, women from Galilee and Joseph of Arimathea. The old song asked the question, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Such an intriguing question. And I think this view of the crucifixion painted for us by Luke encourages us to say yes, as the entire swathe of humanity is represented in this scene. It is also fascinating that Jesus now takes centre stage. For all of chapter 23 so far, Jesus has been off to the side. He's only said four words in verse 3, as he appears before Pilate and then Herod and then back to Pilate. Now, Jesus takes centre stage. It's not the Romans that are in charge, it's not the rulers that are in charge, it's not the baying mob who is in charge, it is the Lord Jesus who is in charge. He is the master of ceremonies of his own crucifixion. And what we have in these verses is a panoramic picture of judgment and salvation. Interspersed across the five scenes in our passage is an intricate weaving of these two themes. There are those that mock, scoff, ridicule and rail against Jesus. There are those who only turn up to the crucifixion to see a spectacle. 
They are those under judgment. They are those who have rejected and failed to recognise what is happening and who it is, who it, it is that is being crucified. But then there are those who are transformed by this encounter, who grasp what is happening. There are those who see the significance of Jesus, the innocent man, dying for sinful people. There's a dying thief, a Roman centurion, a member of the Sanhedrin and the Galilean women who watch nearby. Luke has been all about Jesus, the one who came to seek and to save that which is lost. And now, here at the climax of the whole story, he is still seeking and saving people. But on the other side, there is still judgment. There's still continuing lostness, blindness and rejection. This passage is Luke painting a panoramic picture of judgment and salvation. So come with me as we see these twin themes across these five scenes. Scene one, Jerusalem judged. Jerusalem judged. As you probably know, Luke's gospel is built around five journeys. Chapters one and two is all about Jesus's journey from heaven to earth, the Christmas story in Luke. Then uh, chapter three to Chapter 9, verse 50, is about Jesus journeying around Galilee. And then 9.51, we read that amazing verse that Jesus set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. And for the next 10 chapters, Jesus and his followers moved from Galilee in the north down to Jerusalem in the south. In 1928, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem with the triumphal entry. And it is then four chapters of Jesus journeying to the cross. A journey that will culminate, the climax of that journey will be our passage today. And then Luke 24, which I'm sure you'll study next week, is all about Jesus' journey back to heaven. So here we are on the final leg of journey four, as Jesus is led out of Jerusalem towards the hill on which he will be crucified. Weakened by his all-night ordeal, his barbaric treatment and knowledge of what is to come, the Roman soldiers conscript Simon of Cyrene, literally Simon the Libyan, to carry the patibulum, the crossbar of the cross, which was carried to the site of crucifixion by the condemned man. As Jesus processes along, he encounters a group of female mourners in full flow. They are mourning and lamenting. These are the people that would be there at all Middle Eastern funerals, wailing, stirring up emotion, bringing to front and centre exactly what is happening. But in verse 28, Jesus turns to them and says, Daughters of Jerusalem, he says, Your weeping is misplaced. Rather than weep for me, weep for yourselves. And for your children. The reason given is that judgment is coming. In Jerusalem, representing the whole Jewish nation. In Jerusalem, their rejection and murder of Jesus means that they are bringing judgment upon themselves. 
In rejecting Jesus, the nation of Israel will face full, final and fearsome judgment. It is a terrifying pronouncement that the days are coming when the childless will be blessed because they won't have to see their loved ones endure the horror that will come with them. See verse 29, Jesus declares triply how blessed these barren women will be. When they will say, blessed are the barren, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. It will be so bad in those days that people will cry to the mountains to fall on them and cry to the hills to cover them. It is a terrifying picture where a cataclysmic earthquake will be better than enduring what is to come in judgment. The illusion of mountains and hills comes straight out of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 2. And that is a picture of final judgment where God punishes all sin, where all wrongs are made right. It is a terrifying picture and one that Jesus says is going to fall on the Jewish nation on account of their rejection of their Messiah. Verse 31, for if they do this when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry is a Jewish idiom and says that if these people crucify the innocent Jesus, when Judaism looks alive and healthy, what will they do when it's all dried out? Let's be clear, this is the Jesus who a few chapters earlier wept over Jerusalem exclaiming that their arrogance in rejecting the Messiah would lead to enemies setting up barricades and tearing the city to the ground. It is a declaration of judgment upon unrepentant Jerusalem and unregenerate Judaism. The day Jesus speaks of is the day of final judgment. On that last day, knowing Jesus will be the only safety. Rejection leads to judgment. Jerusalem's rejection of Jesus will lead to their judgment. It is that binary. It is that simple. In AD 70, Jerusalem got a taste of what that final day would be like when the Roman soldiers sacked the city and destroyed the temple and massacred huge numbers of inhabitants. Scene 1, Jerusalem judged. And a stark warning to us about the eternal things that are at stake if we reject Jesus. The procession moves on and in verse 33 they arrive at the place that is called the skull. Here in our second scene we see scene two, rejected rescue. Scene two, rejected rescue. It is astonishing how little detail Luke gives of the act of crucifixion. Four words in verse 33. There they crucified him. However, all around the cross there is action. Jesus again speaks, but this time prayer. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Right here amidst the pain, brutality and horror of crucifixion, Jesus prays for his executioners and the gathered horde who have gotten him to this point. Jesus prays for forgiveness. Forgiveness that will be secured by this sacrificial deed 
done by him for them. Father, forgive them. Forgiveness as the sinless one dies at the hand of the sinful. To make this point, his garments are divided in accord with Psalm 22. Psalm 22, a psalm all about the righteous one who suffers in faith at the hands of his enemies. Forgiveness offered by Jesus' Father, forgive them. But forgiveness spurned. Jesus' prayerful petition holding out forgiveness is greeted with scoffing from the religious rulers. They say he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. Words dripping with irony. It is precisely because he didn't save himself that he is able to save others. It is precisely because he is the Christ, the chosen one of God, that he must also be the suffering servant numbered with the transgressors. To compound the ignominy, And shame, the soldiers jump on the bandwagon and amplify the mockery as the dying Jesus they claim is a king is made sport of before the watching world. The ridicule culminating in Jesus, the supposed king being offered sour wine, the cheapest unpalatable plonk reserved only for the poorest in society. And so seen too is another picture of judgment as rescue is rejected, as the prayer for forgiveness is met by scoffing, mockery and taunting. Judgment, if you reject Jesus, is the message. The camera now zooms in closer to fix on the three condemned men hanging on the three crosses with Jesus in the middle. And here we see salvation as well as judgment. These two themes now intertwine at this key moment, this unique moment, relate to us by Luke. Scene three, criminal confession. Scene three, criminal confession. Egged on by the watching crowd, one of the criminals takes up the onslaught, railing against Jesus, he says, verse 39. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. However, from the other side of Jesus, he receives a sharp rebuke. What comes now is a stunning confession from a condemned criminal, conscious of his sin, hours from his death. See the three confessions of his guilt and Jesus' innocence, verse 14. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly? He says we are condemned rightly, for we are receiving the due rewards of our deeds. We get in what we deserve. And then says, but this man, this man, Jesus Christ, has done nothing wrong. Surely a threefold declaration matching the words of Pilate earlier in the chapter, when Pilate says, I find no guilt in this man. I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. I have found in him no guilt. The criminal then turns to Jesus with a petition. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And in the short prayer is a stunning confession of faith. 
A recognition that Jesus is the king of a future kingdom beyond death. And one that he has complete authority to welcome people into or banish people from. It is Jesus who will be the fulcrum of salvation or judgment. Of acceptance or rejection. Of citizenship in heaven or eternal torment in hell. See it is salvation all of grace. This man is in the agonies of crucifixion and will be dead by the end of the day. He is powerless to do anything to earn his acceptance. He simply throws himself on the mercy and grace of God and is met with concrete assurance from Jesus. Jesus says to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So scene three pictures judgment and salvation. Judgment of one criminal who joins in the crowd in railing against Jesus. The other, a penitent criminal, confesses King Jesus and is met with assurance of eternal life in paradise. See that one criminal was saved so that no one would despair. This Jesus is ready, willing and eager to forgive all who turn to him in faith and grant them eternal life. But see, only one criminal was saved, so that no one would presume and complacency, complacently assume that it will be all right in the end and carry on regardless. Having hung on the cross for a few hours, we now move to the death of Jesus as the camera pans out and takes in the whole cityscape of Jerusalem as well as the Mount of Crucifixion. Scene four salvation seen seen for salvation seen creation now offers its own commentary on the proceedings as utter darkness falls over the whole land judgment shadows the whole scene as the sun's light fails not only that but across the skyline over at the temple the enormous curtain that protects the holy of holies is torn in two This massive curtain, inches thick, keeping everyone out from God's symbolic presence, is now thrown open. The rigours and rituals of Judaism now obsolete in the death of Christ. This is the theological explanation of the cross. That in Jesus, the sinless one, dying for sinful people to cleanse them, to forgive them, access to God has now been opened to all in and through the death of the Lord Jesus. Sin has now been dealt with finally and fully. And God is now approachable and accessible. Jesus now utterly fulfills everything that the temple foreshadows. We worship God through Jesus. We have access to God through Jesus. We are children of God because of Jesus. We can boldly approach the throne of grace because of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. Back on the cross, verse 46, Jesus calls out in a loud voice using the words of Psalm 31, Father, Into your hands I commit my spirit. The Lord Jesus, as he had lived all of his life in faith, now dies in steadfast faith in his Father and breathes his last. 
In verse 47, we zoom out a little bit and we catch the figure of the centurion. The man responsible for overseeing the execution party. And he makes a stunning declaration. Certainly this man was innocent. A man who would have been present at a great number of crucifixions. Sees Jesus die and praises God. Testifying to Jesus' innocence. If the criminal on the cross was the first convert at the crucifixion then this centurion receives salvation as the second. We then pan around and observe two crowds. And I think Luke means for us to take our place in one or the other. Verse 48 is the crowd who looked on at a spectacle for entertainment to relieve the drudgery of everyday life. Now it is over. They return home beating their breasts in approval of the punishment of the condemned man. Then verse 49, another crowd, Jesus' acquaintances and the women who had followed him all the way from Jerusalem to Jerusalem from Galilee. They continue to watch in eager expectation. They continue to hope that this might not be the end, even though they can't see how. For one crowd, the show is over, let's move on. For the other, the continuing intrigue of faith that dares to hope that there is more to come beyond the death of Jesus. I wonder which crowd you would have been most at home in. Spectacle or hopeful? Staying near the cross, looking on in faith or going home and getting on with life. Then finally and quickly we move to scene five. To the burial of Jesus. Here again we see a picture of salvation. As we see a faith filled funeral. Scene 5. A faith filled funeral. We now hone in on Joseph of Arimathea. If our passage started with Simon the Libyan. A complete outsider. We now finish with Joseph. Who couldn't be more of an insider. A member of the Jewish ruling council. A man of means, with access to Pilate the governor to ask for the body of Jesus. Though this man was different to his fellow religious rulers. For we read verse 51, he had not consented to the ruler's decision and actions to crucify Jesus. Also we learn he was looking for the kingdom of God. A description first used in Luke of Simeon and Anna, the two dear saints who were eagerly waiting and eager to meet the promised Messiah. It is a hope-filled note that though Jerusalem and Judaism is warned of coming judgment from verse 28 onwards, there will, however, be some people within her walls who will be sought and saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. This man, Joseph of Arimathea, buried Jesus in an unused tomb. And so again, Isaiah 53 comes true. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Time was of the essence because the Sabbath was about to begin. See also the original Spice Girls in verse 55. These people now eager to bury Jesus properly. Still staying close to Jesus, hoping somehow 
for a resumption to the story. You'll have to wait for next Sunday to see whether their hope was realised. And so we conclude our panoramic view of judgment and salvation at the cross of Christ. The clear message is that confessing Christ brings eternal life, but rejecting Christ will bring only judgment. I wonder if you were to ask, answer the question from that song, were you there when they crucified my Lord? I wonder if you had been, who would you have been? Sceptical onlooker, brutal ridiculer, or someone who looked to Jesus with the eyes of faith, realising that he alone has the keys to eternal life and citizenship in paradise. The astonishing thing about how Luke has written this account is that he continues to show how wide God's kingdom is. Simon of Cyrene is the first man mentioned, a Libyan, an outsider. We have reason to believe that he was a convert, as Mark tells us in his gospel that Simon was the father of Rufus and Alexander. And Paul in Romans 16 makes special mention of Rufus as a key church leader, a man whose life was transformed by this encounter with Jesus and his children and generations down the line, continue to love and serve the Lord Jesus. Luke is saying that Jesus' kingdom is for outsiders, people that don't fit in anywhere else, fit in in Jesus' church amongst Jesus' people, united in the future hope of being with him forever. Then there's the criminal, a man who had made lots of mistakes that had caught up with him, Punished rightly, yet one who receives eternal life, sure and certain hope and complete forgiveness from the Lord Jesus. Luke is telling us that Jesus' kingdom is for those who have messed up. Those who need another chance. Those who are conscious of their own sin, and yet those who throw themselves on the Lord Jesus will be forgiven and welcomed forever. Then there's the centurion, a battle-hardened member of a Roman death squad, and yet he sees in Jesus something completely different and utterly compelling, and we see that Jesus' kingdom is even for such as these. So amazing is the work of grace, so totalizing is the offer of forgiveness that even a Gentile Roman centurion who confesses Christ gets in. And then finally, there is Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Jewish high command, and yet someone full of faith and full of hope that Jesus is the king who will establish God's forever kingdom. And Luke wants to tell us, Jesus' kingdom is even for religious insiders even for those who were in the establishment, but only those who look at the Lord Jesus with the eyes of faith. So the big takeaway from today is that Jesus' death opens a new and living way into his kingdom, a forever kingdom, entered through faith in and forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ and his death for you. It is a very wide kingdom, encompassing all kinds of people, 
It is a very wide kingdom that can include even you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for sending the Lord Jesus to die for us, that we might have hope. Help us be those who look to him in faith for the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you that his kingdom is a forever kingdom, one in which we are welcomed into by him. Help us to cling to Jesus, to stay near to Jesus, to look always to Jesus. Father, help us have very soft hearts and eyes forever fixed on our crucified Lord, who loved us and gave himself for us. We pray all these things in his holy, worthy and conquering name. Amen.